0: very similar to the way our law firm operates. We're not trying to be, to overlawyer anything. We don't try to over negotiate things. We try to let our clients decide on what risk they want to take. And that's part of the being on the same team or whatever, cliche you want to call it, but, but the conversation we were having just a second ago is my, when my clients are chasing a deal or they're negotiating a loan or whatever it is, I can go to them and say, hey, this provision is not very good. But your risk is pretty small. It probably won't happen. But here's the risk that, that you're taking. The other side is not going to change it. So if you don't want to do the deal because of this, don't do it. But, you know, really your risk is pretty small. And 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 so we encounter on the other side a lot of lawyers who, won't do that. They'll just negotiate, 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 rewrite our documents. And it's pretty ridiculous. Like it's just, just wastes a lot of time. It wastes their client's time. It's not good for their client. And so we try to be fair on, because we know our time is valuable. Our time is expensive to our client. And so we want to be fair on on the time we spend and make sure our clients understand the risks that they're taking because no document's is perfect understand the risks they're taking and let them make that choice because the deal many times is more important than whatever potential tiny risk there is just like you're talking about Mm -hmm. hey do you want the deal or not it's going to be like this and they can make they can make that choice to take the risk or not welcome to winning strategies playbook the podcast where we welcome business leaders ceos and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top Building wealth and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann.
1: Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. that's experienced with an ED. You can click on podcast, scroll down, listen to this episode, all the other different episodes, watch it from YouTube, and all the different platforms to download. And if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, you can go back to the homepage, click find a trusted professional, and we'll make sure you don't get an idiot. Because there's a lot of idiots out there, but there's a lot of good people that add value for whenever you are looking to buy and sell real estate, even if it's not the SPAN group here in Dallas-Fort Worth. But we're not here to talk about real estate today. Well, kind of talk about real estate. Kind of. Kind Kind of, right? A little bit? That's what I do. It is. It is what you do. So if you scroll on down to Greg Monroe... You're going to find my good buddy. And for the audience, Greg and I know each other because we were in the same forum of entrepreneur organization uh, for some time. And uh, that's how we got to know each other. But, Greg, before I start all these, my father-in-law says I got to do a joke. And I intentionally do bad jokes. I'm ready. All right. You ready for this? Okay. Who invented the circle? I don't know. He's actually from Britain. Or the UK. Circumference.
0: I like it. I like it. Circumference. I've got one for, for you, too. Okay, let's hear it. My favorite joke ever. What did the fish say when he hit the wall? Damn. Yes. See? Yes. So, Have you told that one yet? No, okay. I
1: haven't. But when Jamie Peace was on, oh, God, it was probably around this time last year, he said that. Okay. And that was the only reason. As, as soon as you started to say it, I was like, ah, oh, I know this one. It's my favorite one ever. And But the good news is, it must be so good that it's becoming a reoccurring theme. So how about I just change up the show and tell that joke every, every time? Every time, perfect. Every like time, like right? It. Yeah. And then everybody, it'll be predictable. Then I could throw it off and come up with a really inappropriate <laughs> joke. Because I never say anything inappropriate, do I?
0: No, never. Right.
1: <laughs> so Greg and I, part of entrepreneur organization, we were in a forum, which was, I like to, if you had to really sum it up, was a um, a team of people that were codependent on sharing and caring with each other about the triumphs and tribulations of being a business owner. Yep. And you're a business owner. Yes. Actually, you're a very sophisticated business owner. I don't know about that, but... yeah, you're
0: pretty sophisticated. I also have partners. It's not just me, but... Well, but. let's talk about that. What is it for the audience that you do for a living, Greg? I'm a lawyer. I'm a commercial real estate lawyer. So I, we do deals. We help, we help real estate developers, banks, and... Office building owners, retail building owners, make money. We help protect their money and help them make money, and and so we we transact all of their their deals. I, I represent a lot of banks, fifteen or sixteen different community banks in town, a couple of national national banks. And we document their commercial, typically commercial real estate loans. So we'll do all the loan documents. We'll negotiate them with the borrower and the borrower's attorney. We'll do the due diligence for the bank. We represent a lot of developers who develop. Anything from single tenant, triple net leased, building. So that's like a fast food restaurant, like a Seven Eleven, or a car wash. But we've got an express car wash company. So we help them. They, you know, we don't find the site. They find the site. We put under contract for them, uh, review title, review the due diligence stuff, help them with their construction contracts, get it built, and then they'll sell it. So I know this is going to be a very open-ended, ambiguous
1: Question that can have 50 million answers, but is there doing what you do? Is there one? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into real estate. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people realize it's like, hey, yes. At the end of the day, it's four walls on a roof on a piece of dirt, but you've got things like surveys and easements and titles and so forth and liens and a, a million different things that can give it essentially dirty title. Right. Yes. yes. What would you say is or is there something that's the most common thing that you see that's not smooth? That you're like, okay, when we go in, we're, if something's going to be jacked up, it's probably going to be X.
0: Well, that's, that's, that's not an easy question. So it depends on yeah. the deal, right? So if it's yeah. a multi-tenant office building or a multi-tenant retail center, you're, you know, you're, you're buying well, – no matter what it is, you're buying the lease. That's where your income stream is if it's a, a constructed building. And so you've got to look at the lease. You've got to make sure there's no the tenant doesn't have outs. You've got to make sure the, the landlord is, has finished all of their work so you're, you're not stepping into a cluster. And so that's one side of it. Title is another side, of course. Like you said, who knows what the – if it's new construction, has the seller paid all their subs? Are there any mechanics liens on title? We've got to make them get rid of that. Um, is there corporate stuff amassed? Do they have authority to convey title? Got to figure that out. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of things we look at, and most deals are fine, but the ones that aren't, create problems. And you know, you'll have we had, one deal was an office building in Houston, the parking garage was built like ten feet over the property line, so we had to go get a get the neighboring property owner to consent to that because it was an encroachment. We were we were trespassing on the neighbor's property if we so f- if we for, bought this property for the audience. What does encroachment mean. Encroach means the the improvements have gone past the property line. So you're trespassing with your improvements. So we see a lot of that on the residential side. Mm-hmm. With a fence? Exactly. You
1: know, and, and it was really kind or of shed. interesting. Shed, driveway, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, even even what's been really funny and, you know, I was buying many properties, single family rentals is I've been doing with my fund is even the water meter can yeah. co- like yeah. something not in my control that was not put in by me, but a government entity can cause an issue with encroachment. And we found that on one of our properties because I was, I mean, and this was a lar- really interesting seven six one hundred nine half acre lot with mm-hmm. an asset on it. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't see that very much, mm-hmm. you know, especially in a in a zip code like seven six one hundred nine, unless you're down there at Colonial and you got big lots, of big houses. And I was trying to find out where the stink of water meter was on this thing. And I mean, I was walking every inch of this property where finally it was in the same container that was on the neighbor's property. They put them both together. Right. Yeah. And now, is this a deal killer? Anything? No. But it was something that now that we know about it, when the property conveys later, that's something we need to disclose. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I was really annoyed that it wasn't disclosed to me. Now, was it going to affect anything? No, not really. And as it turns out, the neighbor, longtime friend of mine, we had worked at Fort Ward PD together. He's former Navy SEAL, so I got to beat him up and make fun of him all the time. Not really beat him up because he's a very fit guy; they could probably <laughs> still take me. But but it was just interesting on something like that. And then on one of my personal houses, when we went to sell it, is it had since. The neighbor had since sold to somebody else, and we'd loved the previous neighbor. Mm -hmm. The new neighbor, we just didn't know. And when we were going to do the T47, which is the form that you do with the survey, and the fence was somewhat on their property, even though this fence was built long before we had ever bought the house, Mm -hmm. there was an issue being made out of it because we had to get his permission, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. To say, hey, is this okay? And he was like, no, not okay. And then it was just this unnecessary back and forth. Cause I was like, well, hey, if I'm gonna put
0: up a new fence, you're gonna pay for half. Are yeah, you getting the dirty side, one or the other?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and so, anyhow, so those, those little things. So I can only imagine that in commercial real estate, those things that seem small, like a parking garage mm-hmm. that's multi stories with who knows how much concrete. What do you do in a situation
0: if the neighbor says no? Well, we just killed a deal where it was it was in the north side of here, at Fort Worth, and the it was an industrial building, and the owners built the building. I think it was like twenty five feet over the building line, so it was major. Now it was a we we're dealing with the city, we're not dealing with the neighbor. It was all in their property. It was just they built the building line as the minimum setback from the street or from the neighboring property or whatever. And so they, they built over that line, which was, you know, required by the plat, And we had to go and get waivers from the city. And the city had all these fees to do it. And the seller wasn't going to do it. And, I mean, we tried to negotiate a lower price to go and deal with all the work and kill the deal because we couldn't come to an agreement. But it was same thing. It was, you know, having to go to someone even more difficult, typically, than an owner, than a neighbor.
1: What? You're saying that the government's not the easiest <laughs> yeah. to work with, not, not always. Not always. Not, not always. always. What? Say it ain't not so. Not Say always. it ain't
0: so. Although, they would have given it to us. Yeah. They would have given it to us. So, you know, in one sense, it's easier. You can always get it. It just sometimes takes longer and maybe costs a little more. But, uh, you know, we ended up killing the deal and didn't didn't pursue it. Yeah.
1: And it's, you know, and, and, and so, what's really interesting, is especially so I've got a very unique background and many things that I've done. And I've been very fortunate to work in a lot of different spaces where I've got more knowledge in real estate through multi, you know, not just the residential side, but the commercial Mm -hmm. side and so forth than probably the average bear does. Right. And 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 it, which has been both a blessing and a curse. But I have been able to take that knowledge and utilize that in single family rentals, Right? Because at some point, you're going to sell whatever you buy. Mm -hmm. Right? And the thing that's really interesting is my take on due diligence is so much more sophisticated than probably a person who's even seasoned in it. Right? Because I don't want this stuff falling. Well, especially
0: for houses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No one does due diligence (laughs) on houses.
1: No. (laughs) Man, you would be surprised. It is like talking – to a fence sometimes yeah. depending yeah. on, you know, there, there are, there are, there, there are good agents out there and there are good agents that will represent your interests. And then there are bad agents recently. I talked yesterday on one of my episodes on one of those. And then you've got inexperienced agents. And then you just got some that man, if they, they're, they, if they held onto their ears, they might be able to scratch out two brain cells. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and that's why we really prided ourselves. And on what we do in the span group, as far as representation of folks buying and selling real estate, because well, one, we're, we're a lot different than the average bear, right? Is m- most real estate folks don't have an attorney. Mm-hmm. Laura's an attorney, and I mm-hmm. like what you said is you know is to you know figure out where the loopholes are. So she's there to open the loopholes that benefit our clients, and you know close the loopholes that are liabilities to mm-hmm. our clients, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really – I mean, really, when you look at it, if I had to sum up, all that brain damage you go through to get a law degree is really learning to be better at opening and closing loopholes. That's right. Right? That's right. Is – because it's case law that you can utilize to leverage against something and so forth, right? And let's face or it. Or you contract that. around it, which is what I do. Yeah. Or here, here's what's, what's really funny is, you know, with buying all these assets, we've been using a PSA, purchase sell agreement, and when it's off-market, it is not an issue at all. When it's on-market and I'm dealing with an agent who most likely only got a license because he got 70 out of 100 questions right. <laughs> and they had a 25% chance of getting all 70 of those right because this multiple guest tests. And I'm presenting them with a PSA. And because they're so used to fill-in-the-blank proglomated forms that were written by attorneys that literally it's fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. It is mind-blowing for them. I'm like, if you read your one to four and you read my PSA, they're almost identical. There's a few differences in there that allow us to do some things during the contract that helps us position ourselves for success once we close. But you would think – like one, I I literally just killed a deal because the guy was like, I'm not going to do it if it's a PSA. And I was like – here's the thing, you don't have to do anything. It's your client that makes a decision. Now he has influence over the client, so I'm sure he told the client don't. But this guy was such a moron that he couldn't read the contract that I was like, you do realize you just cost your client money, and I was willing to give you more than what you're going to get from anybody else.
0: We deal the same thing commercial. And so, yeah. like, my my typical purchase contract is – I, I've worked hard to make it plain language, make it easy to read. It's, it's shorter than the NATCAR, which is kind of the typical commercial form you see, or the TAR form. And it is not... Like, those forms have check boxes that don't make sense. <laughs> and they have... Like, the biggest thing in those forms is, in the default section, it, it has you know, specific performance, or you can terminate and get the earnest money, or anything else allowed by law. Well, that one little phrase creates or opens all kinds of doors. One of my previous law jobs, I worked for a law firm that had been fighting over that phrase, has been in the Supreme Tech Supreme Court for like eight years over some farm and ranch sale using a farm and ranch contract because that phrase opens it up to anything out there. Well, we try to limit it to two things. You can turn with the contract or you can sue us to sell it to you. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. And it's just, you know, but but the insistence to use the forms... Because they don't have to read it. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is. They don't have to read it. It, is, it blows my mind. It How really can you does. dumb it down for the
1: dumb, yeah. right? Yeah, Basically. Yeah. And it doesn't. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So, like, for example, our feasibility, right, is I don't use inspectors on my houses. Mm-hmm. One, because I did that in the beginning, and inspectors are generalists, and an inspector missed quite a few things. Right, right. So, I the amount that I spend on an inspector, I could spend the same amount to just pay a fee to a plumber, electrician, Mm -hmm. foundation, roof, HVAC, so forth, right? Mm -hmm. To come in there that is a licensed professional in that particular industry to tell me what's the good, what's the bad, because that's all I want to negotiate. So like, for example, and thank goodness, and I I, got to give a shout out to this guy, Bo Jennings. He actually did a phenomenal job representing his client, super easy to work with, Completely understood. You know, we were using a PSA. So, Bo, if you happen to ever be listening mm-hmm. to the show, I'm giving you mass, mass love because you're a very good agent. But what we ran across is because we scoped the lines, the PVC lines with a camera, is a lot of houses in 76109, they have, I mean, they're old clay mm-hmm. roots the, and roots yeah. problems, right? So, it ended up being a significant root problem that we were able to negotiate and get fixed prior. Or, because I'll tell them, look, I'll do the work. I just want the money at closing mm-hmm. so that way I can pay a contractor to go in as soon as yeah. we close and get it done. Right. Day one, I guess we're going to... Yeah. Right, because if there is anything I've learned is properties in 76109, look, you can deal with the old wiring, you can deal with the pier and beam, you can deal with termites and everything else. But if you got bad plumbing, it can get really expensive. Mm-hmm. Right, especially if you buy a house where somebody put in some new plumbing and never got it permitted, and you're wondering like, what right. the hell does this yeah. go to? Right? Yeah. Why does this house have 15 cleanouts? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> There's only two bathrooms. How does this thing have 15 cleanouts? Right. Uh, and so, anyhow, so we we dive into that to go back, and so that's part of it is to go, hey, look, we're gonna we're gonna negotiate this, you know, because I don't care about the nickel and dime stuff. You got cracked tile, paint looks like crap. I don't care about any of that. Like, I want to know what's going to be the the things that could potentially disrupt the financial function of this asset, right? And another part of it, too, as soon as we get out of feasibility, our PSAs are written to where we can go and start working on getting new tenants, Mm -hmm. right? We can utilize a number of things. So that way, if the property is incoming, it can continue to be incoming with getting new leases attached. Mm -hmm. And then the other part, you're absolutely right. Is reviewing those leases. Now, what I will say is, a lot of these leases, very much, very good for the landlord. But I mean, I I, I couldn't believe that people were signing these things. Like, well, no one reads them. No, no one reads them. Like they were horrible. Yeah. Like, why would you? Literally, if this house falls down, it's your fault. Yeah. Right. Like, literally, it was like, hey, even natural disasters. If something happens to the house, falls on the tenant, and I was like. You, you would sign something like that? Like, no way in hell I would sign that, yeah. you know? And, and, and so it is really interesting is that having professionals, legal professionals, that can get in there and identify these things that hopefully – it was it was kind of funny. I, I, I learned this lesson, very expensive lesson, many, many years ago. But you lawyers, you cost a lot less on the front end. That's right. Than you do – on the back end if I go, "Hey, I signed this. This is the shit show I got, and I need you to unfuck this for me right
0: now." <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's when y'all start licking your lips like, "Oh, we
1: could fix it, but man, it's going to get expensive."
0: <laughs> well, and and you know, my good group of clients know that, and it, we there's we have the one-off deals where somebody refers me somebody and like, "Hey, can you just get, I'll pay you 30 minutes to look at this lease." I'm like, "No, I'm not going to do it." You know, if you want to pay me 30 minutes, then you can pay me 30 minutes, but I'm not going to the lease. Yeah. Because it's going to take me four hours. Yeah. And and that's that's just reading it. And then we've got to negotiate it. So, no. But the people who understand that, it, like you said, costs a lot less up front, like, hey, handle this. You know, just handle yeah. it. Whether it's buying a, you know, putting a contract together or a lease or whatever, just handle it. Yeah. And it's so much less money. And they don't complain or, or care because they know that we're working to protect them and help protect their asset and help them make money. Yeah. It's, it's much easier to much easier to deal with up front.
1: It really is, and, and, and an interesting thing too is when you are leasing, even an office space, right? Mm-hmm. Those leases are significantly more complex than a, a
0: lease that if you rented a house and you used a yeah, track reform. form, right? Because there's so many expenses, you got to understand yeah. how the expenses are passed through. You got to understand because it's not just rent. You're not paying rent. You're paying rent plus. You know, why are you paying electricity? And what's your what share of electricity are you paying? Are you paying the taxes? What share are you paying? Is it based on the tax from the first year? Or are you paying all the taxes that are passed through? It's it's different in every building, really. And office leases are typically gross leases, meaning all the expenses are included in the rent. But that's not certainly it's not been the trend for the last ten or fifteen years. There have been well, and, and let me back up. In a gross lease. It'll be the there'll be a base year, so the first year of the lease, all the expenses are included in the rent. The next year, you pay the difference. If if the expenses, meaning taxes, insurance, common area maintenance increase, you pay the difference. So you pay the increase, and each year it goes up and goes up. And there's different ways that that's calculated, and you got to understand that. And then you know, retail leases are typically triple net, meaning net, net, net. Your the the rent is net of the insurance, net of the taxes, net of the common area maintenance. So you go lease a space for twenty five dollars a foot. Well, if it's got twelve dollars a foot in expenses, you're paying thirty seven dollars a foot. You got a mm-hmm. you got a budget for that, and a lot of inexperienced business owners who want to start a business and go lease space in a cool building don't know that. Mm-hmm. And you know, understanding how the lease works is important because it, it really reflects the direction of your new business that you're starting, because it's that's your biggest expense up front. Besides so staffing, of course, but if you're starting a new business, you don't have a lot of that. Or if you've got a
1: very sizable financial obligation on a lease and then something like a global pandemic happens and And you can't operate. Can't operate. So you got no money coming in, right? And it is, it's 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 incredibly frustrating because you got the owner, landlord, property manager, whoever, it's like we we you know, we want you to succeed because if mm-hmm. you're succeeding, then you're paying Bank for the a lease. Mm-hmm. But if I evict you, pretty much nobody's in operations right now, so it's just going to be sitting there. So, it, it, it's, but is it could get very complex. I had a, a a client who was downsizing space, like what we've seen after the pandemic. Of, I'm not down he, that particular situation, they weren't downsizing the amount of square footage they needed. Um. For any other reason is because it's one thing when your people stay home because the government stays home and then you tell them to come Mm -hmm. back and they have to come back. But what do you do when a workforce says, if you want me to stay as your employee, either I'm going to work from – continue working from home or I'll do a hybrid situation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which everybody says, well, we'll just make everybody come back Till all of a sudden it's like, well, 75% of the population has said no. So I don't know if that's correct. I'm just using it as an example. Then you have to accommodate and then – you have to go. Well, I'm paying for all this space, so I need to downsize. And in that particular si- situation, too, not only was the client downsizing in the amount of space, but we had found a smoking deal on a two office suite asset that I was like, you, "We need to get man." We, I'm not gonna lie; I'm really got pat myself on the back for this one. <laughs> is we? I, I told him, I said, "If you don't buy this, I'm going to buy this." Like, I could literally buy this thing and turn around and sell it the next day for 100 grand more. Like, turn around and flip it. Matter of fact, I could probably get it under contract before this thing even closes yeah. and just reassign it, make yeah. money on this thing. Yeah. Right. And, and so, anyhow, ultimately did, but he was concerned because he still had well over a year left on where he was at. And so, as we talked to him, just said, You only got a year left. Go to the landlord and let's see if we can get a little buyout right? Yep. And even though the buyout was very significant based on the lease, he's like, well, I don't want to spend that much. And I said, look, the answer is always no, unless we ask. I said, let's go in at this number. He's like, there's no way they'll take that number. I says, man, we live in a different world right now. You would be surprised what people say yes to. He said, okay, took it. And he said, holy cow, man, they said yes. And I was like, "Are you happy?" And he's like, "Yeah, because I thought I was going to have to carry this while being in the new mm-hmm, one." Mm-hmm. So even though it was costing him money, his overall savings over the next twelve months was like it was something ridiculous, like 30, 40 grand. Yeah. Which, in a post-pandemic world, 30, 40 grand can mean the that's difference a
0: of big deal
1: paying an employee yeah. that you were going to lose because you yeah. didn't have the money to retain that employee. Right. So those are those are really interesting things. So that's why, and and, and like we. You and I work in an industry where we have a lot of people that claim to be a lot smarter than what they are, right? Because it's like, I always love when people come to me and they're like, let me tell you how this house buying process is going to go. And I'm like, okay, cool. It's like, how many houses have you bought in your lifetime? They're like, two. And I was like, okay, you know, I close like two deals a week, right? Like, this is what I do. And what you're telling me is, first off, that's not going to happen. And secondly you don't want to be thinking that way or else you're just going to be spending your tires and you're going to be sitting here three years from now wondering why you still haven't been able to buy a house. Right. Right. Or sell a house. Right. <laughs> I mean, actually, that's one of the reasons why most of the things that I buy are off market. Right. So I'll network, find out mm-hmm. who's got an asset, I like can acquisition, so forth. But on the on market ones, James, who works with me now, says, how are you able to negotiate these things on market? And I said, well, it's one of three things, either that." Agent has no competence, the seller doesn't have any competence, or both don't have any competence, which are my favorite ones. One, they're more difficult to deal with, but I'm able to get their property below market value as an on market house where our inventory is less than one month. Right, right. Because they think they know what they're doing more than what they actually have that business acumen to do, right? And I'm just like – and then once we're able to overcome their objections, clearly show them, look, if I would have sold your house, this is what I would have told you. And here's how you would have yielded a lot more than what you're yielding from Mm -hmm. buying it from me, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, hey, as Jeff Foxworthy says, you can't fix stupid. right? So, But it is important to have professionals. You need to surround yourself with people that are experts in what they do, Mm -hmm. right? So – it's uh, like, for example, I mean, would you go to a dentist and ask them to do open heart surgery on you? Nope. Hell no. Right. And, you know, like even and I'm sure like it, um, I'm making an assumption, but I'm I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure you, you agree with this. So people think because you're a lawyer that, you know, all things and everything lawyer related from criminal oh, yeah. law to every bit of anything else. Right. Oh, yeah. And people make that assumption because they're like, "Oh, but you went to law school and you're a lawyer." And <laughs> like e- e- even with me, if somebody came to me and said, "Hey, I want to buy a 50-story uh office building over in Dallas." I'd be like, "Hey, cool. Let's go recruit somebody that really knows how to do this." Right, right. Because that's I've never represented anybody doing that and I would love to and I'd love to learn, but your money's more important than my money and what I don't want you to do is be holding a bag for unnecessary money or leaving money on the table because I didn't know the right questions to ask. That's right. Right? So kind of like if somebody coming to you and be like, hey, I got charged with murder, can you help me? And you're like, well, as long as there's like an asset to sell, I can help no. with that part.
0: <laughs> the answer is no. No! I've not been to court in 10 years. No. <laughs> no. I don't go to court. No well, one in my firm goes to court. So well, speaking, speaking of court, let's back up a little bit
1: is – you know, because usually I do the journey on the first part of this, but we just jumped right into it. And, and is So where do you come from and what led you up to
0: deciding, I'm going to go become a lawyer? Well, it's kind of a fluke. But so I grew up in southeast Texas in Liberty County between Houston and Beaumont and went to small schools for elementary and high school and then went to North Texas for undergrad. My college job was working for a law firm in Denton. And they had four partners, and two of them did condemnations, which is where the city or the county or the the government takes land for expansion of highways or for expansion of airports or whatever. They condemn the land. They buy it. Sometimes that has to go to a commissioner's hearing, which is kind of like court, if the landowner doesn't agree to their offer. So two of the partners did that work. Two, did more personal injury, medical malpractice stuff. So I got to see these things. And I didn't understand what real estate was more than buying and selling houses. When I was growing up and even in college, I used to – when when I was growing up, my mom's family lived in Louisville. So we drove to Dallas, through Dallas, uh, every holiday generally. And, you know, you go see the big green building and it has – Chase Bank or whatever on the top. Well, I thought that was the whole bank. I thought the whole building was whoever's name was on the top. I didn't understand that that was leased to, you know, a hundred different tenants. I didn't get that. So I got into the real estate thing, watching these guys do condemnation work. And they had, so like they would send me to go to the courthouse to go and kind of research the property records a little bit, find out who owned this you know, a little strip of land because we're expanding a road, or we—I'd have—they <laughs> let me go and serve the little lawsuit things sometimes, and so I'd have to go find people, and it was—it was fun little thing, not just filing papers. It, it, it was—it was good entry into the into the I guess real estate world, and they had one deal where they represented the landowner that surrounded Alliance Airport. City of Fort Worth was expanding Alliance Airport and offered, you know, half a million dollars for this piece of land. And the lawyer's like, okay, wait a minute. If we sell this land to you, our property, which they have, you know, 100,000 acres, our property is landlocked. You're taking away our access to any road. And the city didn't realize that. And so, you know, they negotiated back and they're like we're landlocked you're taking away our access you can't pay us 500 you need to pay us 5 million you know was, i don't know what the numbers were but something major and they're like yep you're right okay and they wrote that check and they the attorney's got an eight hundred thousand dollar attorney fee i'm like this is what i this is the business <laughs> this is where i need to be right here right here and so uh they they were super nice to me they gave me a fifteen thousand dollars bonus when i was in college that was an i mean an amazing deal and uh so it got me – it really piqued my interest on the real estate thing because I didn't know what I was going to do when I was in college. Both of my parents are teachers and they both have their master's degree. They're well-educated and have now retired. So I thought maybe I'd be a teacher. You know, I walked into a school one time in college for the observation and I walked right back out. I was like, this is not for me. I'm not going to work with other people's kids. And so, the law, like, I applied for law schools my last semester of college and got in to Wesleyan. I, You know, I applied to all the ones in Texas, like, on the, le- the late deadline. And so, I was waitlisted a few places, and Wesleyan said, hey, we got a spot for it. Like, okay, I'll try it. I'd never really been to Fort Worth. I'd been once or twice and moved to Fort Worth and loved it. And so I got a job in law school working for a commercial real estate company just as a broker's assistant. And so I was preparing leases, office leases. Uh, They did mostly office work. And touring little spaces, you know, should I have been doing that? Probably not, but uh, they were little bitty ones, so no one cared. And I got a real – I really saw the inside world of how it worked, and I loved it. And, you know, I got got my first job kind of meeting people through that company – and then they, they turned over to become a client. And they're one of my big clients now. And I've been representing for 15 years. And and so it's it's just like it's been step, step, step. And then once I got in, I loved it and wanted to find out how to do it. And that's how I've shaped my career is to be just to become a real estate lawyer. My first real law job, I worked for a small firm that did kind of one partner did construction work. So that was more litigation. One partner did transactional real estate work represented a few banks did some commercial work and and i worked mostly for him they split up i went to a bigger firm that hired me to do litigation because in 09 that's what there was no real estate work to be done um but i said okay i'll come in and do what you need me to do but here's what i want to do and they said that's fine build it and you can do that but right now we need you to go to court and so one year later i was no longer going to court because i had my own business and it it because I had a few key contacts and did good work and was able to turn things around quickly. Maybe the good work part is too strong of a word because I didn't know what I was doing, but but I tried hard and turned things around quickly. They kept referring business, and in and, and 9, 10, when there was very little to be done, I was busy, and all those guys have exploded since then, and I kind of grew up with them uh, as a lawyer, and as they were growing up in their real estate development, life cycle. And, and it's been it's been great.
1: So what is it about it that you love? When you, I mean, because you, you said that word multiple times.
0: So I, I like to, I mean, it's so neat to me to drive down the highway and say, hey, I work on that building. I work on that building. I do the leasing for that building. My clients bought that building. I helped finance that hotel. It's so neat to see the tangible, real things that I'm working on. And I love to see... The business, how these guys make money, it was just a new world to me when I, really, when I got in law school and worked for the commercial real estate company, and truly understood how office buildings were leased, and there were so many tenants. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" Because, because again, I thought it was the bank that had the name on the top that had the whole building. I thought it was just their building, and it, it, it was mind blowing. So, it was. I, I love the business side of it. And seeing how that one asset houses so many companies, and how and the management of how how it's how it's run to to help or not to I guess doesn't help but 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 how the the landlord makes money on on all these leases it's it's just a fun fun experience to see I think you know it's kind of funny and this
1: is why I love doing this show is one when Let's say somebody needed some commercial real estate legal advice, right? Mm-hmm. Or retainer. Not, advice seems always free. Retainer means we're not working for free. And as I've said on this show, there's three things I've learned in business is one, your time's not free. Two, don't be in the convincing business because you don't have that magical power. And three, stop worrying about what everybody else thinks about you because the haters are going to hate. The people that love you are going to support you. And just hustle till the haters ask if you're hiring. That's right. Right. Is it, it seems like we do things because of money or power or control. But really, I hear you talking about just driving down the street, and, you know, and, you know, and I know your wife and your kids, right? And you're able to go, man, I, yeah. that, that was my project right yeah. there, right? Yeah. And it's just something cool about that because it's also when you get to, take pride and passion and purpose into something that you're doing that's more than just the paycheck, right? Right, right. You know, because let's face it, as being business owners, there's a lot of BS that comes with being a business owner that if we could just not deal with, it would be fantastic, right? right. And But like, one of the things is, so we got into buying these off-campus, single-family rentals in 76109 TCU. And now we're just about up to 30 assets, right, in 18 months. Pretty, pretty quick pre mm-hmm. movement learned mm-hmm. a lot of lessons, mm-hmm. a lot of good ones, some very bad ones mm-hmm. that were very painful, uh, some expensive ones. But one of the things is that people go, man, what's so cool about what you're doing isn't dealing with TCU college kids and fraternities a pain in the ass? And I said, no, not really. I said, well, one, it's all about perspective. Like, I'm not in the Marine Corps anybody anymore, so nobody's trying to kill me for a living, so everything's, you know, <laughs> seems like not a big deal, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And when they've thrown a pretty big party, I'm like, you should have seen the parties we were throwing in the Marine Corps. Except right. We had explosives of alcohol. Right. We, just, we just blow stuff up, right? right. right. And, uh, you know, but it, it was like this This is our – we're in our third season of leasing, right? So 18 months, but now I've experienced because of the timing, this is the third season I've been able to engage yeah. in leasing. Third semester. <laughs> right, right. And, and so – It's But it's been really amazing is our properties fly off the shelves. Yeah. We actually charge more than other landlords. Our properties, you could have a landlord who's got a house that's identical right next to mine, and kids will pay more, and their parents will pay more to be in our property. Now, people might go, well, why in the hell would they do that? And I'm like, because value is not always determined by a dollar sign. that's right. And these parents... Love us. Well, one, they love it that it's a bunch of old Marine Corps vets. that yeah. got together so they, they feel safer with their kids. You know, two two of us out of the group are retired cops, so they feel like their kids are safer. And we always go, Hey, look, I'm retired. I'm not here to be the fun police because I know you're college kids and y'all do college things, right? So I'm not here to get invasive on that. But three, we treat them with respect and dignity, mm-hmm. right? And we're not afraid to talk to parents. Like, I would laugh as how many. Like, we get a lot of tenants that come from other properties, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, our landlord was horrible. In fact, recent example happened over the weekend. We're getting some new tenants that you never see happen during this part of the year, right? But they were dealing with a landlord. Actually, I think her agent was probably very key in dealing with that, too. Um, Is I was like, yeah. And their parents, I haven't had any issues with these kids. Right. And their parents are grateful. And they were like, wow, y'all are actually really responsive. And so that's what I love. Mm-hmm. I love that people it's not about it's it's not about the dollar sign, but I love it that people are willing to pay more to be in our properties because of how we run business. That's what gets me excited. Well, that's right. right.
0: And I think that's part of the competitive thing too, right? So you're excited because they're coming to you as opposed to the neighbor which could be less. And same thing for for me like I I I love getting getting the new clients and and me, having them continue to come back. I think that's what's so exciting to me. Yeah, the money's great, but but it's the repeat business where you know your client's business and you know how they operate and you become as a lawyer part of their team. That's when it's fun because you're – it's not trying to figure out what their hot buttons are, what the things they're worried about are. Like you've done that once and you only need to do it once. And they keep coming back because you only had to do it once. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's part of the fun. And we represent some really cool people, people that are great friends of mine, have become friends because they were clients first and vice versa. You know, clients now that were friends and that's a – it's – I'm sure you know it's a tough – kind of a tough – or can be a tough deal to have both sides of a relationship there, professional and personal. But it's worked out well for me for the most part so far. I'm I'm partners in some real estate deals with some of my clients. I'm partners in a boat with some of my clients. You know, so it's we, – we have – we've created some really good relationships and that's been a great part of the fun of it. So what you're saying is
1: you've established something called – Trust,
0: yeah, yeah, which is which is huge, and
1: which goes both ways. It does one million percent. It goes both ways, and like, but one thing that I, I, I'll like, I'm not afraid to talk to parents. I do Zoom calls with parents, right? And here's a funny thing: is because other landlords are afraid to talk to parents, parents are beating them up, calling them, texting them all the time. I generally end up only talking with a parent once because they're after they talk to me the first time, and especially if they're kid is coming from a house that was mm-hmm. with issues. And they're angry in the beginning, and by the end of it, they're like, where were you when we <laughs> leased a year ago? <laughs> yeah. You know? And Like, this is great. And and generally, I don't even hear from most of them ever again. I mean, perfectly fine, too. Right? But they're just like, hey, we, we trust you're dad. Because I tell them, I said, one thing you can get from me is you're going to get transparency, and I'm never going to tell you what you want to hear. Right? I will tell you what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. Like, it was kind of funny as... This uh, recent lease that we were getting signed, I was on the call with the Zoom with the new tenants that will be moving in in June and the parents. And I said, I want you all to have clarity on my lease. Now, with me saying that doesn't mean I'm going to change or negotiate anything on my lease. I just want you to have clarity. And so and our, our houses are flying off the market. As soon as we get them, man, they are, they're getting leased up for, mm-hmm. you know, and now – not only are they leasing up, but because we built such a brand, kids are like, can We signed for two years. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll take that all day, every Sounds day good. right there. Yeah. You know. And it was kind of funny. So they hadn't signed the lease yet. And it had been 24 hours and they seemed like there was a large sense of urgency. And I was like, huh. And so one of the kids said, Hey, you know, my dad was wondering if we can make these adjustments. And I just responded with, Really appreciate the question. The answer is always no unless you ask, but the answer is no. I'm not going to change any of that. But if this is not going to be a fit for you, I completely understand. Yeah. I've got several people that are on the waiting list right now. If you could just let me know by 5 p.m., because I'm gonna all I'm going to do is change out the names on, on the lease. Right. With these other kids that are literally and had already offered to pay more. Right. But you were first. because— I was like you were first and even though we don't have signed lease I'm a man of my word. I said, mm-hmm. "Hey, this is what I'm going to do. You're first, but if you're not going to sign the lease then I'm going to put a I'm going to put a cook time on this that you're going to decide." And I would love to have you. I'm not going to go to the next set of kids cuz I make more money. I'm going to go to the next set of kids because we already went through all this. You already have clarity. I already explained more than once mm-hmm. that I'm not going to change anything. But also, if you all you got to do is just ask your parents, look at some of the other leases. Some of these kids are signing; they're going to have zero issues with my lease, that's right? right? Good good. My lease is very fair, right? Mm-hmm. It, especially compared to some of these others. And so he, twenty minutes later, said, "Cool, we're we're good. Let's let's uh, get this thing knocked out." And I was like, "Fantastic! I want you to be in my property."
0: Well, you and know? I think that's that's the way you explain how you operate is is. Very similar to the way our law firm operates, we're not trying to be to over lawyer anything. We don't try to over negotiate things. We try to let our clients decide on what risk they want to take, and that's part of the being on the same team or whatever cliche you want to call it. But, but the conversation we had just a second ago is my when my clients are chasing a deal or they're negotiating a loan or whatever it is. I can go to them and say, hey, this provision is not very good. But your risk is pretty small. It probably won't happen. But here's the risk that, that you're taking. The other side is not going to change it. So if you don't want to do the deal because of this, don't do it. But, you know, really your risk is pretty small. And, and, and so we encounter on the other side a lot of lawyers who, won't do that. They'll just negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Rewrite our documents. And it's pretty ridiculous. Like it's just, just wastes a lot of time. It wastes their client's time. It's not good for their client. And so we try to be fair on because we know our time is valuable. Our time is expensive to our client. And so we want to be fair on, on the time we spend and make sure our clients understand the risks that they're taking because – no document's perfect. Understand the risks they're taking and let them make that choice. Because the deal many times is more important than whatever potential tiny risk there is. Just like you're talking about, mm-hmm. hey, do you want the deal or not? It's going to be like this and they can make they can make that choice to take the risk or not. Well,
1: you know, and it's really interesting thing too is this is why I like actually having an appearance in the beginning too. So I'm like, look, our... Our leases, while, yeah, they cost a little bit more, we also do a lot more. And you're more than welcome to go talk to other parents and other tenants to see what they're experiencing. Judge me on the the results of my actions, Mm -hmm. not my intentions. You know, people hear me say it very often. Look, I'm a talking bobblehead. Call me a liar, whatever you want. Look at the results of my actions. Yep. Let that speak for me. And and I tell them, like, we're going to handle, you know, part of what we do is we handle your landscaping. We handle your pest control. We come in and check your air filters once a month. You know, there's all these things that we do. You know, we respect your kids' privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, we unless they call us and say, "Hey, there's water coming out the walls." It is our full intention to give them at least 24 hours' notice before we're coming yeah. because kids do kids stuff in right. college, right? And uh, and it so that's why I was like, "Look, I want to build a. a, a I want I, when I started this, I wanted to build a brand where." It's kind of like when you you, you were talking, uh, you kind of trickled on this a little bit ago, is other properties for lease are really not my competition. Mm -hmm. The tenants are my competition. That's right. And I'm competing for their trust every single day, right? That's who. So I don't worry about the other ones. And it's also probably why we're getting significantly more. When other landlords find out what we're getting, they're like, how do you do that? I was like, well, one, I don't nickel and dime them like you do. Right. and Or, like, no kidding is you and I actually have a mutual friend. And after the tenant signed for moving in June 1st for their senior year, and I asked him, and I hadn't thought to ask him, where, where were you rent before? And they told me where and from who. And I was like, what was that like? And they were like, man, we came to your property because we actually have a bunch of attorney friends that live in your properties, and they do nothing but sing your praises. And the last... The one we're leaving, it wasn't that, he wasn't that he was bad, but he wasn't good, right? Mm-hmm. It was just very, meh. Yeah, yeah. Like, hey, pay your rent, house still standing, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. And because and the thing is, is, especially with this generation, is they really, you know, kids of this generation, like you and I grew up in a generation that if elders didn't care about you, that was just the cost of doing business, right? But it's important for, for this generation now to know that they're cared for, right? Mm-hmm. That Like, hey, no, I, I do care about your success. I mean, I've got one of my tenants is now interning for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was just like, this kid, dude, you just, just every, he was just, dude, he was on fire on everything he's in. And I was like, hey, you want an internship? Yeah. And, and he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And I said, and I'll make it super easy. I just, I need some help with some grunt work that I just don't have the time to do. Yeah. And you can do it from your laptop. Right. right? And you just send Lori your hours every other week. So where you get a direct deposit check. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or we also tell these kids, look, when you finish and leave, feel free to use me as a reference on something, right? Because if you've been a good tenant, I'm going to write a good reference. Now, if you haven't been a good tenant, I wouldn't ask me (laughs) because I'm going to be honest. Right. 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 But it was, but it was also kind of funny is, you know, in, in, in doing all this is, you know, letting these kids know, like, Hey, I I want you to fight with other people to. Not physically fight, but the fight over being in one of my properties because that's the brand we built and that you're sad when you have to leave. Mm-hmm. Because eventually you're going to have to leave. You're going to mm-hmm. graduate college. You're going to go wherever. And, and and that's that's the reputation I wanted. And being that we're seeing the results of that reputation, that's what makes it yep. exciting, right? Because that's when I'm able to look at our team and go, you know what? In the Marines, we did Marine stuff. And now out here in business, we're still doing marine stuff. It's just instead of eliminating threats, we're creating value for people to live in our properties. Mm-hmm. And and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, and trust me, the investors have been more than pleased. You know, they just keep piling money on like buy more, buy more, buy more. Because they're just like, I can't believe the returns we're getting. Okay. Right? Because I said, this is what I'm targeting. This is what I, and I, I'm a big believer in under promise over deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been the other side and that really sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes there's things not in your control. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I can imagine as you being an attorney too is also articulating for your clients, this is what we're in control of. And this is what we're not. Yes. And the things that we're not, that's called that word risk, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's how often have you ever told a client something that was, or have you ever been, because I don't under, you know, Look, I'm married to a lawyer, but doesn't mean that I know anything about being a lawyer. But if you ever looked at a client and just said, Hey, look, I would not do this deal. This is this is too risky. This has got way too much dirt on it. And you know, is are you ever in a position that you
0: do that with your Not often, but I have been once or twice and you know I, I think at least one of those times, my client went ahead and did the deal because they were so far along the process, and this was they were they were getting uh, a preferred equity provider, which is effectively a loan within their LLC, and then they have a you know another lender. Their capital stack was really complicated, and the preferred equity provider had provisions that if they didn't pay the preferred return, the twelve percent per month or whatever it was that the preferred equity provider could kick them out and take over all of their equity and run the deal. So without really any notice or very you know very little notice, without any procedure, they could just do it. I said, well, okay, think about this. If this group was your lender, they'd have to foreclose. That's a 90 day process they'd have to or you know even if it's if, if it's UCC collateral so not real estate collateral they'd still have to foreclose and there'd still be a process of something to go through this group has no process and they can take over your entire deal and the my guys were so far along they couldn't they couldn't say no and the the other, the the preferred equity provider wouldn't change anything it was, it was terrible. It was terrible and very high risk. And, like, if there's anything else you can do, you need to find something else to do. And they didn't. But, you know, mm. th- there's been maybe one or two other deals where I've said this is it, mostly title issues, like big encroachments or whatever. We're like, hey, th- you, you can't get this fixed. You're going to have real problems selling this if you buy it. And they've killed the deal based on, based on that. But the only one that was really like this is a really really bad deal for you was that one, and they had to go forward because they were too far along. Man, and you know, and that's the thing
1: is in business. What I've learned is, look, you're not going to win everything. That's right. And sometimes you're gonna you're gonna take it on the chin, right? And I had one deal that I, my investors were like, we should still go forward, and I was like, I no, I really don't think we need to. And, uh, and they said yeah but you know we're already in out quite a bit of money and I was like I would rather you be mad at me that I yeah. lost ten thousand dollars of your money yeah. than to lose a hundred thousand dollars of your money and I said I've learned from what we learned along this so I learned better questions to ask and and look I'll make it up I'll, I'll find you something it, that yields yeah. much more than it's te- easier to hand. make up ten thousand than hundred thousand right and then sure enough, you know, they ultimately, I mean, that's the great thing is the investors that I have, have just ultimate trust. Like some of them don't even know what they own. There's a site, they're just like, dude, you're killing it. I I just, I, I love you. I trust you. Keep doing what you're doing. Like I'll call them and ask them. And they're like, dude, I don't even know how you do what you do. Why are you asking me? Just yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. And on that particular situation, someone else bought that particular asset and it was a lot more expensive than $100,000. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that could have been us. Thank goodness we did not do that one. Mm-hmm. And so – and I won't give any more details of what that is because I think that one's still kind of tied up with some mm-hmm. litigation going on between them and the previous seller and so forth. But – there's also a thing where is really interesting that I think is important for the audience to know that I encounter I, – I don't do very many commercial deals any longer. Even though that was kind of the environment I came from over to the residential side it, because there's – it's slower. It's not as fast. It's – or as I joke, you know, many a times the other side – Works Tuesday to Thursday from ten to two with two hour lunches and it's like yeah you can't get it's not fast enough for me. But if it's a good client, I, I, I absolutely will because I want them. You know, I, I'll, usually what I'll try to do is go, hey, this is a person that works in commercial that I would absolutely trust. Mm-hmm. And when they're adamant, they're like, no, you're the person. You do this, and I'm like, okay. And one of the most common things that I discuss with them, especially depending on what the asset is and where it is and what it's next to, is going, okay, do you know about phase ones? And they're like, what is a phase one? So at one particular one a year ago, I told them, I was like, look, phase ones are expensive. I think they're like two, $3,000. Yeah. And then it comes back with some not so good news it triggers a phase two which fifteen to twenty thousand. Yeah. And if that comes back bad, it could that particular this particular situation, they said, we're gonna need you to do a phase three, which was gonna cost more than the asset itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And I told them I was like, look, and we were only in the phase one part and I just said, look, I I, nobody likes to eat a couple of grand, but I, I I would rather eat a couple of grand than be stuck with a cleanup that's going to cost you more than what you bought this asset for. Because while this asset will appreciate in value over the next number of years, you're just not going to. Re- you would have to own this thing for 50 years to recover what this thing's going to cost you.
0: Well, but that's yeah. an inter- it's an insurance policy too yeah. because you if you do a phase one uh, environmental site assessment and it comes back clean, but then something pops up that you you know there's oil in the ground or whatever. That have been poured in the in the dirt. And you own the property. So the owner of a property, when there's a hazardous spill, is it's strict liability. Whoever owns it is liable for it. Mm-hmm. But if you've done your phase one and, and it didn't find anything, and then the you know something that predated your acquisition shows up because you've done your all appropriate inquiry is the standard. And I'm not an environmental lawyer, so this is maybe not exactly right, but it's close enough. Um, you can look back on previous owners uh, for for them to help clean it up or help pay the cost to clean it up. The TCQ or EPA or whoever will look straight to you first, but then you say, hey, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I didn't find anything. And then they'll kind of go up the chain. Um, and I've never had to deal with anything past the, you know, the, Assessments, a testing. I've never had to deal with an environmental claim. Those always go to environmental lawyers, and there's some really smart ones out there. But um, yeah, it's. It, I wouldn't recommend anybody buy a piece of property without doing spending the fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars to do that. That's just part of your due diligence. I mean, yeah, if you're buying commercial real estate, you're spending more money, and you spend more money on due diligence. That's, just, that's part of it.
1: Yeah, and you have to expect it. The guy that does my my phase once. I've got several – one of the things I like about them is they'll look at it and they just tell me, this thing's been nothing but dirt. You don't need a phase one. But when they go, I recommend getting a phase one, I'm like, look, I've seen him say no enough times that if he says yes, then you need to do the phase one. That's right. And um, because also something that I tell folks that you want to do these phase ones because, one – I think the government has demonstrated over the last couple of centuries that the government's going to do what the government wants. Mm-hmm. And what you don't want is the government to decide that that particular area they're going to revitalize. And then now they're going to come in and be like, hmm, <laughs> you have a cleanup. And you, what do you get to play? Ignorance? Well, I didn't know I had any issues. Yeah. You can go, no, I did a phase one. And by the way, it doesn't
0: matter. You own the property, so you're right. responsible.
1: You're still responsible, but you are you at least have options, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you want to have is options of – what we can go do and uh, like doing due diligence is uh, I got another client. He's buying a couple of acres here locally and he wants to build a certain type of asset on it. And again, the, these guys, Patrick and Colin, if y'all by accident, listen to this episode, y'all have been great to deal with as well. Um, because on, on, on my show, I do, I do slam some, uh, People in this industry, but uh, but I also want to be the first to go. When I work with someone really good, I want them to get kudos for that. And um, and so, like on this particular one, as we were going through, I was you know I told him I said, look, I know that you just think you're buying two acres and that this can be done in 15 days, and you could, but you don't you don't want to go down that route Mm -hmm. because you don't want to be stuck with two acres that you can't sell because you didn't find these things out. So we had 30 day feasibility, got through, found out. Title had some covenants. So we explored that and extended 15 days to get all that done. So title attorneys were like, okay, this is what it is. This is what it isn't. So the covenants aren't going to prevent us from doing that. And I said, okay. But what the covenants say on this doesn't have anything to do with what the local government will ultimately come in and say you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Right? And so then we went to there and they were like, okay, this is what we recommend, which essentially was going to add – another 45 days of getting things approved. And I said, to me, I would rather go ahead. I mean, you've already spent some money on some, you know, title attorney stuff to learn what you've learned. And now you're going to go spend some more money on an architect, engineer, and so forth to take these plans to the city, get them approved before you're out of due diligence. But would you rather be out 10 grand at the end of the day and be able to do what you thought you were going to do or out ten grand and be able to go, nope, need to cut ties because, as it turns out, this thing's just going to be a piece of dirt here until the city changes its mind later Mm -hmm. down the road, which we never know when that's going to happen. And he was like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense, and I would rather know that. So we were able to do that. But that is the important part of due diligence. If you're going to buy something,
0: know what you're buying. Well, that's why commercial deals take longer. That's why they're slow because it's not only about knowing what you're buying. It's about getting as much done while you don't own it, while you're not spending money on the property so that you can start whatever you're doing the day you do acquire it. Um, You know, for for a development deal like that, yeah, you want to have your plans in place. You want to have, and you want as much time that you're not paying a loan on the property that's not making any money as possible to do that. So you want to extend that contract as long as you can. Oh, yeah. You have due diligence periods, you have permitting periods, you have all these things. I mean, those can take two years sometimes.
1: Well, aside from commercial real estate, you're passionate about something else as well, and uh, a little nonprofit. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so I'm on the board of the Methodist Justice Ministry, which is a nonprofit law for- law firm through First United Methodist Church. Um, Brooks Harrington is the founder, and he's still an attorney with the group, and it's it's an amazing organization. It helps it helps um, mostly women and children who are in domestic violence situations or um, any other bad situations? So they effectively do family law work in domestic abuse situations and they are able to do it without requiring – or without an income requirement like legal aid has to have – you have to be a certain level – Event or or, uh, in poverty or or whatever it is with legal aid, and and a lot of people are cut out because they've you know they have a job and they make enough money to not qualify for legal aid. Well, that doesn't matter with Methodist Justice Ministry, they can take the cases that need to be taken. So they're helping the people who really need help because even though you have a job, you don't qualify for legal aid, you still can't afford a lawyer, and especially you can't afford a lawyer when you need something right then, you need a a restraining order or. an injunction or what you know, I don't even know those terms anymore, but but if you need those things, they're able to step in immediately and help. And there's there's uh three attorneys now and they they work really, really hard. It's it's a it's a great, great organization.
1: Wow. And how'd you get involved in that?
0: Well so it is an it is an organization through the church and I met Brooks at the church, but I was so impressed by him. He wrote a book too, which is amazing. But but I was so impressed by him and, and, and what, he, what he established. Um, and they were expanding their board. And so a couple of years ago, I was on the board. I got on the board, and it's been a really fun thing to see and, and fun to see how hard um, the staff works and how much they care about their clients. Uh, and it's, it's been amazing that some of the, the non-attorney staff are former clients, and they've got great stories from how the Methodist Justice Ministry helped them out of a bad situation. Uh, you know, some, some of them are, well, I'm, I'm the aunt of these kids who were in a really bad situation. I took them over or I'm the grandmother or whatever. Um, and now they're working for the Methodist Just, Justice Ministry. And it's, it's, it's an impressive organization, impressive turnaround to, to see how much influence and effect it's had in helping families.
1: So if somebody wanted to get more involved in that and, or donate to it or, or whichever. Or, or, or.
0: I think the website is okay. Um And on that website, they've got stats of the number of families they've helped uh, and it's and, and some case studies. And it's, it's, it's super impressive. Um, my wife and I give a lot of money to them every year and uh, are, are happy to support it as well. So, yeah, we'd appreciate any, any additional support we could get.
1: Man, that's one thing you got to love about Tarrant County is I think I heard once that Tarrant County has more nonprofits per capita than any other county in the U.S. And uh, which you know I don't I don't make political statements on here because I don't like to get tied up into it, but I, I give factual statements, which is what it tells me is we don't need the government to tell us where the money's going to go because we have got a lot of very charitable people that are willing to donate to organizations to do that. I mean, I know that Laura and I are involved in several and give to several. Been on the board of many, trying to get off as many boards as I can <laughs> now just in the interest of time and just tired of being on boards. And uh, But that, that's the great thing about being in Tarrant County is there is so many nonprofits that
0: are out here to help get folks from one position to the next. Well, I agree. In that, and I think that one of the keys to this one is it's not regulated by any governmental Authority, so like like legal aid, for instance, which is a great a great deal, and and public defenders' offices and those things, they're they're very important parts of the legal society, but because there are strict income requirements, they everyone can't qualify. Uh, there's a, there's a gap in the you know from poverty who qualifies for legal aid to middle class who has a job and has a and and it's functioning, but can't pay a lawyer because lawyers are expensive we're expensive yeah. uh, and and that middle part is not is very well or very much underserved, especially in a situation where they need they really really need a lawyer um, and so this this group steps in and and helps fill that gap
1: that's awesome that's awesome
0: and I love it when you get to
1: meet people that are passionate about doing things for other people outside of their own yeah. self. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. I, I wish I was a good enough lawyer to go and actually help do that stuff, but, <laughs> but I, I, I can at least help support them while they go to. Yeah.
1: So, speaking of self, let's go back to 20 year old self. If you could go back and talk to 20 year old Greg and you knew Greg was going to listen to just one thing, right? Like, either do or don't do this. And and you knew that you could go back and spend five minutes with twenty year old Greg. What what would you what would you tell twenty year old self?
0: I would tell twenty year old self to invest more money than twenty year old self did. So, you know, I told you I got this fifteen thousand dollar bonus when I was in college, and I think I bought a car with it. And that was cool, but man, if I had invested that fifteen thousand dollars it would be worth a lot more now. And 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 just obviously, but but one of the things that's fun for me, again, and watching my clients' businesses grow, and how they invest money and and make money on buying and selling and leasing real estate, which I do too. Um, it's 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 fun. like we we invest with some clients, we invest in some other deals. I've got a small little investment group where we invest in bigger deals. And had I started then, instead of starting, you know. Six, seven years ago, or maybe up to ten years ago, would be a big difference um, on on how the you know the money churns and, and and cash flow it was built. But you know it's it's okay. Compounding interest is yeah, a wonderful thing. It, it is. That's <laughs> that's what I tell myself is to focus more on on how your money makes money. Well, that, rather than spending it. That's been the first one that's been dropped in here yeah. on what would 20-year-old self yeah. say.
1: So that is that is sound advice. So people want to learn more about you, your firm. Uh, where how, how do they find you?
0: Well, so our website is Bamo, law, bamolaw.com. Our firm is Baker Monroe. Um, we have three partners, Chris Baker, myself, and Justin Houston. Um, but, yeah, our website has all the information on it, all of our contact information, and uh, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Man. And uh, in just in case you were driving down the road and you didn't have a chance to catch all that, you can always go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on podcast, scroll down to Greg Monroe, and we will have the links there. And trust me, if you need good sound legal advice, especially if you want going to buy some commercial real estate, this is guy you want to talk to. And as always, if you're looking to buy and sell residential real estate, or any type of real estate anywhere on the planet, want to make sure you get connected with a professional, you can click to find the trusted professional on our website
0: and we will get you connected. Greg, thank you for coming in. Thank you. We-